Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. The museum's new location is 921 Washington Street, downtown Oakland. Our hours are noon to 7 p.m. Thursdays and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Fridays and Saturdays, and 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Sundays. For the past few years, and still to this day, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. We have been off for a few weeks due to some personal and family obligations, and this week we'll be rebroadcasting an episode from 2021 with Roberta Williams, one of the early pioneers of adventure games. I hope you enjoy that conversation, and we'll be back next week with some new content. And we are here with the illustrious queen of the adventure games, Roberta Williams, the absolute one of the founders of this industry. And uh, I'm absolutely floored to have you here. Thank you so much, Roberta. Oh, well, my pleasure. Uh, we wanted to talk about your career and the context in which it existed. And we, we sort of touched on this before, but like when you started with Mystery House, yeah, there was no framework. There was nothing. What did you how did you even envision doing a story, an adventure? What was your inspiration? Yeah, well, my inspiration was the game Colossal Cave, which I'm sure you're very well um, aware of. Um, the very first, what you you might call the very first adventure game, at least that's what the um, the initial designers, um, uh, they called it an adventure game. So that was what we've always gone with ever since. And uh, in 1979, early 1980, I got into playing Colossal Cave um, on a kind of a teletype kind of machine that Ken had. Ken, my Ken Williams, my husband, was a programmer at the time and uh, actually a very, very good programmer. And uh, he he was doing some contract work and he would bring home um, a, a kind of one of these uh, remote teletype um, um, uh, machines. Printed out on machines. paper. It printed out on paper. It looked like it looked like a, um, a a very small printer with roll with roll paper in it, and then it had a separate uh, uh, router where you put you'd put your your telephone your you know the old telephones where you had it in your ear and your mouth you know back then in the ancient days, and you'd put it down into two little foam circles into it and then that would go in the in the tell time and then of course then he'd he'd sign on and then he'd go into whatever uh wherever it was he was working and i think at the time he was actually working for children's hospital in los angeles um, but working from home because this was contract work after hours and on this on this uh huge ibm computer that was at the children's hospital there were some games and one of them was colossal cave all in text, of course, everything was in text because it was actually the whole game was being printed out on on uh, printer paper. And and also this teletype um, machine, little machine had um, had a keyboard attached attached to it as well. And he was just messing around one night in uh, late 1979 with uh, playing. I think there was Star Trek was on it. And I I think I'm not sure. 
and there was some little football game on it where you were playing football with X's and O's and moving them around. And every time it was your turn, you know, you would move your X or your O or something like that to play football. And along with those two, there was also um, this colossal cave. Uh, and he was just messing around playing it. And I was, I don't know what I was doing. I, I had recently had a baby and I was probably, who knows what I was doing with him, but he said, come in here, Roberta, come in here. You've got to see this. I think you'd like this. And I'm like, what, what? He says, here, sit down and, and play this. And I sat down and started typing in, you could type in one or two word f- phrases to get through this story. It was written out, but it was, as it turned out, it was an exploration through an actual cave system, which I'm not sure where it was, Kentucky, maybe? Was it Tennessee or Kentucky? One of those, yeah, one of those was actually designed around that. Um, but obviously with embellishments like dwarves and trolls and dragons and, and things like that. So I def- I got so into this thing, playing it, that I couldn't stop. I just, it was on my mind. I would go to sleep at night and try to try to get past it and through it. And I had all my graph paper over here and I'm mapping it and getting through it. And I wanted to get every single point. And I think it was like 361 or 362 points, something like that. And I got them all finally. And once it was over, I wanted to play something more like this. I want, I just had to do it. The only thing available that w- any kind of game that was like this at the time, by this time, we uh, had bought an Apple II computer for Christmas of 1979. And then I found out that I didn't have to use this teletype machine in order to play it. But by then it was too late. I already had gotten through it. Um, and I found out that there was something, uh, these text adventure games from a, a place called Adventure International. Scott Adams owned the the company at the time. In fact, I think he's still around. I think Ken has actually talked to him lately. Um, and uh, I was, oh, great. And then I can actually have it on a, a at first I th- it was on cassette tape. But then we got a uh, hard drive for our, our Apple II computer and floppy disk, um, floppy disk drive. And I could start playing these games that way. So I played most of those games really quickly, uh, really quickly. And, and when, and then I was just, I started thinking, I, I, no, and no offense to Scott Adams at all, but I was thinking that I could maybe do this maybe better than Scott Adams and so I decided to sit down and see if I could, and I just, but I, I didn't really know where to start. And this is where, from where you're coming from, where you're trying to uh, let other, uh, especially children or, or young people know how to begin designing a game. This is what I was faced with, but whereas today they have you, and they also have uh, colleges and universities that teach uh, you know, computer game design, along with programming and, and, and animation and art and, and, and everything else, we didn't have that. And, and I was not, um, and I will admit that I'm not a college graduate, although I did have some, uh, you know, where is Ken? He, he, and he's not a college graduate either. He just basically learned, uh, by the seat of his pants and experience and smarts and reading big, thick computer programming books, just, uh, 
he just learned it and, and was early on in the industry when anybody that could even remotely program could get a job. So some of that was just very much luck for both Ken and I to be able to, to get into the computer programming and, and gaming end of things from the time period. I wanted to, to quickly sum up one, two things I noticed that you mentioned there. One, you said you were a completionist on adventure, like a full 100%. In today's lingo, 100% achievements, 100% unlocked. Oh, yes. <laughs> the second thing is I have this vision of you with a teletype. That would be loud. This is There's no screen on this thing for our readers. This is literally paper. Is You are typing this stuff and it's printing it out on a piece of paper. Like you must have generated reams of this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had to buy extra rolls of paper. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it is. It is hard to envision. Um, but you but it, it has to be remembered that in that in that day and age, we didn't have monitors like we have now. We didn't. Ha- we had TV, of course. And we even had color TV as hard as that may be to imagine. But we did. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, but um, it, so we didn't have all the bells and whistles that you have today. And I, I don't think, well, I, I'd be surprised. I would be actually, um, I would think it'd be great if, uh, if, a, if a young person or an old person, if any people could get involved into a game as much as I did on paper, <laughs> and just and just to be able to type in one or two word phrases in a in a keyboard and get that involved into it maybe maybe it was just a time period and what we had to work with but i was just always i was always a, a big reader bookworm i just read and read and read and read and, and um very, very imaginative as a kid, extremely imaginative. So I don't think it took much for me. And, and especially the fact that it was immersive um, and interactive. And I was, and even though I, the story wasn't the, the greatest, it was really more just an exploration of, of, of where am I going next and how do I get past this, this, this area that's blocking me. That just drew me in completely. But I also likened it to uh, a story that you could drop yourself into and play it and decide for yourself. And that's the part that really intrigued me. And when I decided that I was going to try to design my own game, I went more the, the story area as opposed to just exploring something like a cave. Indeed. And I mean, that comes through. Your games are so story-driven. I have to quickly interject that King's Quest II was a game that I got into like you did with the uh, the text. However, I, it, it confounded me as a child. It was so brutal and, th- you know, murdering you <laughs> off. And it was so vicious at the time. Well, you know, in, in Colossal Cave, you die a lot, too. Yeah. Too. You know, yeah. so I, I learned that. <laughs> That was the context of the day. The game that was much... the context of the day. <laughs> and King's Quest was less brutal than, than Adventure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, I mean, do you die a lot in, the, in games today, especially with adventure games? I mean, do you or has that been sort of taken away? Uh, in what we would call adventure games today, like the story-driven Telltale games and the things like uh, Life is uh, Strange, uh, no, you cannot die. Oh, okay. So, I mean, is that a good thing or... 
or not. I don't know. Not. We could have a discussion for three hours about that topic, couldn't we? Is that good or not? I don't know. Uh, what do you think? I kind of, I mean, I, I, I obviously have not designed a game in about a little over 20 years. My last one being um, Mask of Eternity, the King's Quest VIII uh, sequel. And then Phantasmagoria just right before that. Um, so a little over 20 years. And I honestly have not played any games since then. I, I get asked a lot. Uh, and well, and so not having played any of the, the game. And, and actually, I've been thinking I should. I, I've really been thinking I need I need to play at least one. And and if I were to play one, is there one you would you would like to recommend? I would recommend Life is Strange or Wolf Among Us. Life is Strange. Let me write it down. Yes, those are both excellent. And they're exceptionally story-driven games. I think you'd be very impressed with where this industry took your inventions. And, I mean, these games, you can see the framework you built. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You can absolutely see the framework you built, except you don't die. <laughs> you don't die. Okay. You don't die. Well, you know. <laughs> I guess before I could even answer that question about whether having death or not being involved is a good thing or a bad thing, I would have to play at least one of these games and then uh, see how I felt <laughs> after I was done doing it. <laughs> but just right off the top of my head, I would say that to me, I think having the element of failure, um, because it's not a real death. You're not really dying. Um, you're just being stopped and, and you have to start again and, or, or hopefully you saved a game and you could just, and, and you were really good about doing that and you don't have to go back too far. But, um, but just the fact that you have to think and decide and you have to, you have to just do a little more, I think is good, but that's just me. But we'll, we'll see. I'll play one of these games. I mean, it introduced risk, right? It's like there's got to be something at stake. It's life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of life, uh, I wanted to give you time to talk about the book that you're, you've just released, I believe. Yes, it's called uh, Farewell to Terra, and it is nothing. It's not a computer game. It's a book, and it's not even a fantasy. I, I hate, I don't want to be, you know, downer or anything because I know the audience that I'm talking to. Um, it's not, it's not a fantasy, although, um, I, you never know, I might get into writing that, but I just, I just, I needed to do something after I was, uh, retired, um, and didn't kind of just didn't know what to do and started up little projects. I learned Spanish and, and just various things. And I got into genealogy. Um, just my uncle sent me some, some, um, some little blurbs about ancestors and, and Irish uh, in this particular case, because my mom is Irish and this was my Irish uncle, her, her brother. And, uh, and I looked at it and I said, Oh, that's really interesting. You know who they were. I hadn't even heard their names even, and I needed something to do. And the internet was really coming on strong and ancestry.com and some of these genealogy sites and I just sat down to Ancestry.com and I typed in their names and up comes some stuff. And, and, and to me, when I, I got into genealogy, it was very much like going to, playing an adventure game. <laughs> and I got into this as much as I got into Colossal Cave. When I was in Colossal Cave, I could not leave that teletype machine. 
or some Scott Adams games, you know, I just play. And I was into this just like playing an adventure game. And I just was going deeper and deeper and deeper into genealogy. And I was going all over the place and finding people and documents. And I just found it just just so addictive and um, it was very immersive. And as I did this, I, I got so much into it. I actually hired a professional Irish genealogist to help me out and get some documents. But as I was doing this, yeah, I began to see a story emerge, uh, but it's a true story. And it was a, it was a story that was based in the, the famine of Ireland, the great famine. And, and I was I actually, I, I just had an interview with a, um, so, you know, a guy in, uh, I, I don't, I won't mention his name or anything, um, but uh, and, and he's in Ireland. He lives in Dublin, who also was into the video games and he had a podcast and, and he was, he was a fan and, and all of that. And he was talking to me and we were talking about history because history, besides fantasy, history has always been my favorite subject. In fact, I would say probably more um, my subject than fantasy. I just love history. And, and he was very much the same way. And we were talking about how uh, it didn't seem that children learn history as much as maybe they used to. I don't know how much they used to, actually. Maybe it was just me. Um, but, uh, but he was saying, yeah, you know, even in Ireland, like the Great Famine is not taught or not really taught much. And I said, really? I mean, that was like a preeminent thing that happened in Ireland. I mean, that was like a big deal. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, he didn't say it wasn't taught, but it's not really, it's not really taught, I guess. And I was saying, yeah, you know, in the United States, we we don't learn that much about history either or like of our country. I mean, we just, um, so we, we, we got into that that conversation I found interesting. And he, he, um, he read my book and he loved it. Um, and he said he learned a lot more about the history of Ireland. Cause I actually, in my book, I go way back to pre-Christian times and, um, and then uh, Christian times and through all the various rebellions that the, uh, that the Irish went through when they, as they were fighting the English who were, trying to come over and take over their country since the, you know, since, well, at least the 1200s and then uh, through Henry VIII and, and on and on. And so I get into, I get into to, to uh, quite a bit of that before I even get really to the famine. Um, and he said he learned a lot about his own country. And I found it interesting because he says, if you're American, and I go, well, yeah, uh, but I, I'm a very good researcher. I'm a very good researcher, and I'm a very, I consider myself a pretty good storyteller. And apparently I was able to sort of weave that. The basic thing about the book is that I discovered two of my ancestors that eventually married in the United States. And that's how we came to become in the United States. And they just escaped the ravages of Ireland after the famine. But I found these two people and it it was almost like a Romeo and Juliet story. And they, in that they were from two separate classes of 
I, of people in Ireland. There was a lot of stratification that you you didn't really realize that um, there were there was you know a good third of of Ireland during the mid eighteen hundreds were very poor, very poor. I, I mean, some of them just didn't even have homes. They they wandered all over Ireland and they lived in mud huts and caves and little and and, and nobody no no um, Roman Catholic Irish person which is most of them they were very Irish Catholic Roman Catholic um, could own property it was against the law it, you could not and this is your country um, and. Um, I found that interesting. Well, one one part of my family, the Clintons, were of that. They were of the very, very poor. And they and they basically lived off of potatoes. And the, the famine was about the failure of the potato. And uh, that's where that started. The other half of this couple, the Romeo and Juliet couple, were the Locrins. They were also Roman Catholic. They could not own their property, but they came from a class of people who were uh, what they call strong farmers. They had property. They didn't own it. They leased it, but um, but they were they were pretty well off. And it, I found it interesting these two families of very different backgrounds who came together. In the end, and um, they emigrated, and they um, started um, family line. That, and here I am. <laughs> I was part of it. But I liked the story, and I loved the story of how these families were so different, and and how they how they went through the Great Famine, which was uh, Ireland started out in in um, my great 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 no great 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 grandfather was born in 1841 and, and the famine started in 1845. So he was three. And my great, great grandmother was born in 1846. And the worst of the famine was in 1847. So they were born during this, they were very young, but uh, before when Patrick was born, there were over 8 million people in Ireland. By the time they immigrated, they were down to about 5 million people. So at least a million people died, and 2 million people by that time had immigrated. And many of those died on the way to America or Australia or Canada. Um, now Ireland has come back. Ireland has about 6 million people now, but they're still down 2 million people from the height in um, 1845. So it's a very so, relevant story for today. I mean, with the immigration, I mean, the, the Irish did not arrive in the United States with open, open arms, you know, as no, they did not. <laughs> they did not. Very few immigration waves. Yes, get the open arms. Yeah. Treatment. So this is a drama dramatization. Um, it, it is fiction in the sense it's based upon uh, a true story. It has a lot of facts. So it's not a family genealogy. It's very dramatic. It's very intense. And uh, and in fact, I've actually found that people who are reading it who are not of the family 
are enjoying it more than people of the family and go figure that i i well, excellent well yeah. you're such a good yeah. storyteller roberta and unfortunately this is only a 20 minute interview i wish these could be hours yeah, long i unfortunately it, have to it. cut it off here but uh that was wonderful i very much appreciate you taking the time and we'll have you back in the future hope oh well that that would be my pleasure and uh and thank you very much for uh letting me uh go on and on and i appreciate it no, it's not going on and on. I'm sure everybody is listening very intently. I know that at least one of our listeners runs the interactive fiction group, so they're still playing those. Adventures. Oh, well, one more thing I need to say, as long as we're here, check out my uh, website, <laughs> robertusbook.com, robertusbook.com. And then, and there's all the information you need if anybody's interested in buying it or reading it there. Okay, yeah. excellent, Roberta's book. And say the name of your book again. Farewell to Tara. Farewell to And Tara. then you'll you'll learn why Tara as you read the book. Wonderful. Thank you so Thank much you. for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, shoot us an email at info at As I mentioned, we'll be back next week with a new episode. First for our patrons and available everywhere you find podcasts a week after that. Until next time, I'm Jed. We'll see you next week.